Welcome to the Oakcrest podcast channel. Oakcrest School in Vienna, Virginia challenges girls in grades 6 to 12 to develop character, faith, and leadership potential to thrive in college and throughout their lives. On today's podcast, Leslie Canuck, a science teacher at Oakcrest, presents Physics for Contemplation, Finding Pathways to God in Unimagined Places. Mrs. Canuck graduated from the United States Naval Academy with a Bachelor of Science in Physics, a Bachelor of Science in English, and a minor in English Language and Literature. In her discussion, she introduces both physicists and saints, explaining how their respective discoveries and insights reveal to us both God and the physical world, and she even breaks down the reason why the sky is blue. Good afternoon. So the other day, in one of my physics classes, I did a quick poll, and I said, girls, how many of you want to be mothers? Most of the girls raised their hands, and I said, okay, what are you planning to say when your toddler comes up and asks, mommy, why is the sky blue? And then they start, like, nervous laughing. <laughs> and they say things like, oh, well, I'll tell him to Google it, or um, God painted the sky blue, something like that. You know, God made it that way. And I said, okay, you know, that, that's fine. That's a good buy yourself some time type response until you go find out. And I bring this up because I want to inspire that sense of asking how things work is a beautiful, very deep question. I think sometimes, you know, when we focus so much on the liberal arts, we forget that science is a liberal art. And we think about when we ask those big why questions, we forget that answering why, why am I here? Why do I exist? Why does anything exist? Often requires us to ask maybe how did it happen to begin with? And that how question can help us answer the why question. Um, you know, asking a question, why is the sky blue from a young child or any, anyone, frankly, it does imply this intuitive sense that there's an answer. There is a reason the sky is blue. We know from a young age that there's a reason that existence behaves the way it does. We're just curious to find out why. Um, I promise I'll tell you why the sky is blue, but I'm going to leave you in suspense. That will be my last slide. <laughs> um, so in my talk today on physics for contemplation, I am trying to um, share why I do view science, physics in particular, as a subject that is a liberal art. It does help us answer the big questions about our existence. Um, and why I do think it's a contemplative exercise, what it does to inspire reflection and what it does to help lead us towards our creator. Because ultimately physics is the study of creation. If you want to know about an artist who studies art, if you want to know about a creator, our creator, why not study his creation? Um, now, I do think that there's definitely problems in approaches to science which have led to this idea that science is for the smart people or the math people or the people who want lucrative jobs or something kind of, you know, divorcing science from this like contemplative exercise that it really fundamentally is. Um, I wanted to share with you, you know, a 2014 study of young Catholic young adults asked, you know, what, what is your perception on how science impacts your faith? 72% um, of Catholic young adults responded that they accepted that there is an inherent warfare between science and religion. 72%. 62% said that their faith was not strengthened by discoveries of science. 78% said that 
cited science as a reason for them stopping belief if they if they did um, uh, you know lose their faith. They they believe science was a cause of this. Um, and obviously, I'm here to try to refute all of those things and inspire that 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 sense that science gives us wonder and wonder draws us to our Creator. I do have a quote. Um, Blessed Nicholas Steno, I'm going to refer to him later in our talk. He was a Catholic bishop, considered the father of geology and anatomy. He was one of those guys that did everything. Um, love this quote. One sins against the majesty of God by being unwilling to look into nature's own works. So again, when someone asks you, why is the sky blue? If we were to say, because God made it that way, and accept that as period, the end, I'm not interested in, in looking any further, I don't think that's actually what God wants. I mean, certainly God did make it that way. But I think he wants us to find out why he made it that way. All right. In my view, science is a gift to us from our creator, a creator who knows us and wants to be known by us. You know, as Christians, we are familiar with faith as an invitation. I'll certainly like look at even just the opening of the Gospel of John. When Jesus is um, inviting his disciples, he says to them, come and see. He says that multiple times when he's inviting Philip and Andrew. Um, but I want to also suggest that that invitation of faith is not a mere abstract thing that only resides in the spiritual realm. I do think that this invitation is also um, with the material world, because of course he made that. Um, you know, Genesis of course tells us that he created the world and that it is very good. And I think he wants us to also discover that for ourselves. And I also want to point out, I mean, the incarnation is a fact of history. And if God became flesh, he further dignified the material world. So um, a pursuit of science, looking into the material world, does have that sense of dignity because God entered into it. His, his, his self, like he, his, um, his mark is on his own creation. Um, in this slide, I included one of my favorite paintings. It's by Caravaggio. It's the incredulity of St. Thomas. I love this painting. Um, I love how it, it illustrates Jesus invite, inviting us into this physical contact with himself. So again, I do think that that represents this dignity with investigating the physical realm of our creation. Um, Jesus says, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. I think it means more than, than mere abstract terms of faith. I think he wants us to participate and interact with the world that he created. Um, John Paul II, always good to quote St. John Paul II. Um, in the prologue of his encyclical Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, he says, faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to contemplation of truth, and God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth, in a word, to know himself, so that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. So I wanted to share with you, before I go into why I love physics, well, what made me even pursue physics? I have a little bit of a story. 
Um, when I was in college, my freshman year in college, I had to figure out what I wanted to major in, and I was one of those kids that wanted to major in everything because I love learning. Unfortunately, that's not very feasible. You do have to scope things at some point in life. Um, and so we had, a, um, at the Naval Academy, there was a majors open house. So we can look at all the different departments and get a sense of what would we learn, um, what would we get out of studying that field. And when I went to the physics um, department's open house, they had a, a poster that they presented. It was just kind of in the background. And it listed all the different fields that physics majors go, go into. And of course, it's all the things you would think, engineering, medicine, um, you know, uh, various STEM fields. But on the list was also theology. And again, I want to point out that I did not go to a, a Christian institution. I went to a secular school. And here they are promoting theology as something that physicists are interested in. And I was, I was absolutely hooked. Like I knew, I knew I wanted to study God in some way, but I also had this love of um, math and just the, the way things work that you discover through science. I had that, like, that wonder and awe that I knew I had to do something in science, um, but I wasn't quite sure which science. And that really got me hooked. Um, but of course, you know, why physics? I mean, physics itself is the science that concerns itself with the fundamental properties and behaviors of the universe. And I'm talking the universe, the big and the small. You know, there's so many different branches in physics. Among them include cosmology, which is the study of the cosmos, um, not cosmetics like I was once told. <laughs> um, so, of course, like the absolute big, 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 but to the small. We all have heard of quantum, quantum physics. Quantum meaning small, tiny. It's referring to subatomic physics. So physics concerns itself with answering all of those questions. How does it all work? How does it all come together? Um, so I started as a physics major, and I loved it. I, I love I love science and I love math. And but there's this part of me that felt like something was missing. And so skip over a little bit of the pedantic details of the story. I had this opportunity. This is the beginning of my sophomore year. I had this opportunity, had this free period in my schedule that I could audit um, an English class that I heard all about. And I, I was, again, one of those kids, I audited a lot of classes because <laughs> I loved learning. Um, but this class, I got so excited that, that I had this, this, um, this free period available because I heard about this teacher, and his name was Doc White, and he was just like this legendary a professor of English at the Naval Academy. He was there for about 28 years, I think, before he finally retired. And I got so excited, so I got to go to this class, and I sat in on the class, and I was, there was that part that I felt like was kind of missing from my science and math classes. And it was just that sense of, I love language, I love literature, I, I felt like my mind just kind of like came alive in his classes. He was one of those dramatic lecturers where like everyone wanted to take his class. I mean, not even just the English majors, you know, people would bring recorders into his class because they never wanted to miss anything he said. Um, so I wanted to share with you this one moment I had in the class where I knew I needed, I could not give up literature and language. I just loved it so much. I often get asked, oh, you double majored in physics and English. That's really different. <laughs> um, why would you do that? And I you know I always kind of laugh. I'm like, yeah, they're different, but I do find them complementary. I, I feel that physics helped me understand and appreciate God's, God's 
creation, like the material world. Literature and language helps me see human creativity as a part of it. But what I'm hoping to share with you today is kind of going back to science. Science actually, I think, reveals more than just how does rock formations work, you know? I think it does more than that. Um, so I had this one um, uh, anecdote from this English class I wanted to share with you. And since this talk is about, you know, unimagined things, I bet you weren't planning to look at Shakespeare today <laughs> and talk about physics. Um, so this is one of my favorite excerpts in literature. It is from Act Two, Scene Two of Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. Um, the narrator is describing Cleopatra as she sails down in her barge down the, the Nile. And he says, the barge she sat in, like a burnished throne, burned on the water. The poop was beating gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke, and made the water which they beat to follow faster as amorous of their strokes. So we read this, or rather, Doc White recited it from memory. <laughs> and he said, I want, you to, I want you to notice something Shakespeare did here. Not only is this like beautiful poetry, it's very vivid in imagery, but he said, Shakespeare deliberately wrote this entire passage using aspirant sounds, like puh, all the sounds that require um, you to use a lot of air when you say them, because poetry is, is meant to be read out loud. And he said, Shakespeare did this because he wanted his words to fill the sails of the barge. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> and I remember having this moment thinking, wow, I, you know, I, I always loved poetry. I loved the imagery of it, the, the musicality of it. But here I had this moment when I realized that there's so much that human creativity can do. And I felt, I remember walking out of the class, and, and this is a very literal memory. I remember thinking, wow, the world is magical. I mean, magical. That was, that, that was like a theme for me, that we can somehow bring these things together. Um, but I want to share with you, I share with you that, because I went from using that word, magical, to describe just how awesome the world was. And I want to actually share how science, I think, matures that understanding from the world is magical into something that is, I think, deeper than magic. And what I realized having studied um, science and continuing to do so, because there's so much to learn, is that there is something deeper and better than magic here. Magic, of course, if I define it as this this otherworldly sort of arbitrary like behavior that's removed from everyday life. And so science, I think, helps us figure out that everyday life is actually wondrous on its own. Um, I don't want to live in a magical world. I want to live in this world. And science helps me realize how everything I could possibly imagine magically is inferior to what nature actually possesses, what nature actually is. So again, I do think everyday life does reflect beautiful order and this delightful creativity. Um, unlike magic, science is not arbitrary. We know that science is predicated on laws, can't be arbitrary. 
it's not expedient, right? I don't go to a doctor and say, whip me up something that's gonna make me better as much as I wish that often were the case. I, I go to a doctor because I have a belief that a doctor can understand the laws of medicine to help figure out how to apply them specifically to me, right? I don't have this, um, you know, the world doesn't operate on arbitrary law. Um, and so like magic would be expedient, but the rea reality is not. And I think science itself teaches us that. Science requires painstaking research. It requires perseverance, endurance, humility, right? You have an idea, you have a hypothesis that you want to test, and you have to be humble enough to see if you were wrong. And certainly, all the things that we know about the universe, which is only the tip of the iceberg of everything that there is to know about the universe, so much of that has been modified as we've gone on and learned from each other. The girls in my physics class already know um, Aristotle and other uh, scientists like him propose this idea that for motion to even exist, there always needs to be a force, some force from nature allowing that motion to exist. It wasn't really until Galileo and Newton came on in the uh, 1600s that we now understand that that's not correct. So imagine how long we go thinking one thing to only have that, that fine-tuned until we understand what's really going on. Um, so obviously science does take humility. Um, I, I want to share this quote from Einstein. It seems like always a good thing to share quotes from Einstein. <laughs> The eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. The fact that it is comprehensible is a miracle. I kind of want to sit there, that that sense that the world can actually be understood. I don't think, I think we take that for granted. I mean, because I think what we need to do is recognize where our Christian worldview is really, is really to thank for this sense of, I can investigate the world, I can understand the world, because the world was created by a, a, by a divine creator who is reason himself. Compare this, of course, to the, the, a pagan worldview. You know, we, we know from mythology, many of the um, beliefs were that, oh, why was there a storm? Must have been the whims of the gods, no real order there. Um, so if it's not, who knows why that happened? It's just arbitrary feelings of the gods that we, you know, we believe in. If it's not that, then it's this um, maybe like a pantheism where everything is a force, like the gods are forces of nature, and God is now within nature. The Christian worldview tells us God is not within nature; God is outside nature. But again, the logos, right? God as this creative power, this, this reason, this order, he created a world that is reasonable and it's intelligible, it can be understood, and I think it's because he wants us to invest, investigate the world to discover that it can be understood and what about the world can tell us about he himself. Um, so I, I love the, the lines I have here. They did not come from me. They came from a scientist named Christopher Baglow. But he says, you know, our, our world, the real material world, is one of order and openness. Um, law and flexibility, symmetry and surprises. There is a sense that 
this all goes together in, in a certain like orderly reasonable way but that doesn't mean we live in this deterministic world that because everything is orderly therefore we have this kind of fatalist idea of okay therefore if a equals b then b equals c and then d happens right we don't live in that world we live in a world where we were given free agency and we actually affect the outcomes so I think that that's also a beautiful thing that nature also shows us that I want to share with you a little bit later in this talk. So again, we do believe in order, but we don't believe in this like kind of rigid determinacy, right? We do believe that there are surprises um, and innovation and creativity all part of this. Here are two examples that I wanted to share with you. Both were physicists. Um, Paul Dirac on the left, um, he's the one we have to thank for antimatter. Um, both of these um, individuals are great examples of seeking first beauty and symmetry and then seeing where that leads us. So um, Dirac proposed the existence of antimatter because he first and foremost was interested in mathematical beauty. Um, you probably remember from school learning about complex numbers, like imaginary numbers, the square root of negative one, right? Well, the mathematicians that came up with this were just doing that because, to not overgeneralize it, it was just fun to think about. What is the square root of negative one? It's an imaginary number. They didn't create, invent, or arguably discover those numbers because they were trying to describe anything in nature. They were just doing it for the love of mathematical beauty. But it was Paul Dirac who was looking at some equations and realized, well, if I'm going to take this to where it naturally leads, these complex numbers actually do describe the universe. And it was through this sense of mathematical beauty that he, he um, proposed the existence of antimatter. Um, and he was affirmed a few years later when Carl Anderson discovered the first positron, which in a sense is like an inverse of an electron. Um, I love this quote from Paul Dirac. Um, this result is too beautiful to be false. I think that there is a moral to this story, namely that it is more important to have beauty in one's equations than to have them fit the experiment. And then he goes on to say, you know, if you did not get the results you wanted in your experiment, don't, don't lose heart. Really, you know, it could be, maybe there was some, you know, systematic error. Also be humble, you know, you don't, don't predetermine the results of what nature is going to tell you. But I love that sense of first we looked for beauty and then we actually saw that it did exist in nature. So that's Paul Dirac. Next, Marie Gelman, um, another particle physicist. <laughs> he predicted the existence of the omega minus particle also based on the sense of order and beauty. So in the early 1960s, he diagrammed um, all of the known subatomic particles based on their characteristics, the properties of these subatomic particles. And he noted that when he diagrammed them, kind of like graphed them, they made this pyramid without a point. And he said, my sense of order, my sense of beauty and balance and symmetry tells me that there must be this other particle out there with these exact characteristics that would be the point of this particle. And indeed, three years later, the omega minus particle with those exact specifications was discovered. So I want to again share with you that that sense of beauty and order does drive us to discover things. Like the, the math that we often feel is kind of like, why am I learning this? Actually has a point. Remember math, or the numbers, it's like the numerological language of the, of the universe. You never know what they might actually be describing, like in complex numbers.
Okay, so order, beauty, surprises, love it. Unfortunately, however, I do think we don't always approach science very well. I think that um, there's two major issues with the way we approach science, I think, and on two different extremes, I should say. I think we have this issue sometimes with when you approach science with this, this already predetermined belief that there is no God and I'm going to prove that there is no God with my science. And I will talk about that shortly with this slide. And then I want to talk about the mistakes I think believers make when we um, approach science looking at God as if he were in the universe, like a, like a force of nature. So first I want to talk about, well, where do we get it wrong when we are absolutely predetermined that God doesn't exist and science is going to show me that. Um, we hear a lot about, you know, science, that, like I believe in science and in science I trust. And I would like to argue that's not really even the right word. That's a misuse of science. Instead, I would propose using this word scientism, um, which is not my word. <laughs> Um, and scientism would be that kind of like obsessive idea that this is all there is. If it can't be known by science, it must not exist. It must not be valid. So that would be scientism. Within scientism, I say that there are these two other isms, materialism and reductionism. So materialism being only the material world exists, nothing outside the material world exists, namely the supernatural. Um, you know, it, it is a doctrine in and of itself. Now, can science even answer that? If science is only meant to examine the material world, how can science say there's nothing other than the material world? I do think that there's like an inherent um, contradiction there. And then there's reductionism. Um, reductionism really is just reducing everything down to its parts. So many of you might remember the astronomer Carl Sagan who was a self-professed atheist, and one of his quotes is, I, Carl Sagan, am nothing but a collection of atoms bearing the name Carl Sagan. That, of course, would be reductionism at its finest, right? Reducing even himself down to the atoms and molecules that make him up. But the problem with this view is that can it really account for who you are as a person? Can it account for your free will? There are some that will argue, oh, there, we've had studies that looked into free will. We already know, based on scientific study, that before people make decisions, certain predictable chemical reactions occur in the brain, and thus the decision is made. But the problem with all of those studies is that they're only looking at impulsive reactions, like I have my hand on the stove, it's impulsive for me to remove my hand. Of course there's going to be a chemical reaction, a predictable chemical reaction that compels me to remove my hand from the stove. So as much as they want to believe that there are these predetermined chemical reactions that account for what we think is free will, can chemical reactions account for heroic virtue? I certainly don't think so. Why would one set of atoms become a saint and one set of atoms not, right? We do have choice that science really probably can't speak to. Um, I love this. Um, another famous Catholic physicist, um, modern Catholic physicist, is named Stephen Barr. Um, I was reading something about him the other day and I was like, wow, he looks just like William Barr, like the Attorney General. And then I discovered that's his little brother. <laughs> 
very successful family, I guess. Um, you know, he says, um, for scientific atheists, religion is about miracles, miracles are about magic and the irrational, and therefore belief in God stands in opposition to the world re revealed by science, a world intelligible by reason and governed by law. But I'm here to say that 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 is not what we believe. We do not believe the world is irrational. We don't believe in magic. We accept, especially in the Catholic worldview, we accept that the world is orderly and it was created by, again, the Logos. Um, another um, lovely quote from a second century writer. If, you, if upon entering some home, you saw that everything were well tended, neat and decorative, you would believe that some master was in charge of it and that he was himself much superior to those good things. So too, in the home of the world, when you see providence, order, and law in the heavens and on earth, believe that there is a, a Lord, an author of the universe, more beautiful than the stars themselves and the various parts of the whole world. So again, we, we get this sense of, if your house is in order, there must be something orderly about you. Well, let's look at the universe. The universe is orderly and beautiful. That must be something to say about our, our creator. I also want to point out that having this kind of materialistic, reductionist, even deterministic view really also does not really answer for these surprising things that happen. I mean, we, and we call that in a scientific term, emergence. Things that, you know, if you looked at them merely in the sum of their parts, it really cannot describe behavior. So for example, water. Water looks, behaves, acts completely differently than a hydrogen atom and an oxygen atom, right? Similarly, life. Life, living organisms emerge from non-living things. If we were to reduce that to the sum of their parts, that, that really doesn't make sense. So that's where I think some of the, the issues go when we have this predetermined notion that the material world is all there is. And again, that is self-contradictory because science can't tell us if the material world is all there is. Um, here I have Aristotle's four causes, um, where, which I think is a great um, illustration of where we kind of we get off the, the track a little bit by saying the material world is all there is. Aristotle said, well, to, to answer the question, how did something get here? There's really four equally valid answers for that. Um, there's material reason, like this sculpture here. How did it get here? Oh, the bronze that it, that it was sculpted out of, the material reason. Maybe that's really what science can answer. He also says there's a formal reason, like, how did it get here? The blueprint, the plan, the sketch, right? The efficient cause is, well, what effected it? Who made the sculpture? The sculpture made, or the sculptor made the sculpture. And then finally, there's what's called the final cause, which is how did it get here is really, well, why is it here? What was the final end, the final purpose of it being here is another valid way of trying to answer the question of how did, how did that get here? How did that come about? And again, I think science can certainly answer some of those, but not all of them. I think they're all beautifully valid. Um, for the sake of time, I'll just uh, recommend, I love this, there's a very short story. And when I say short story, I mean like, it's like one page, not, don't even have to scroll. Um, on the computer um, by Hans Christian Andersen called The Pen and the Ink Stand. And here, the, the poet is off at a concert and the pen and the ink 
are arguing with each other over who creates the poetry, right? And the pen saying, I do it because I'm the one through which the writing gets on the paper. The ink saying, well, I'm the one that produces the ink that allows you to even write. And of course, the poet comes in and is thinking, um, you know, I, God acts through me. And at the end, the poet says, to him be all the honor. So those are the fallacies I think we make when we approach science, thinking that that's all there is. On the other side, however, and this is the one that I don't think we possibly talk about enough, is mistakes believers make in how they approach science. And this is where I, I kind of call it the clockmaker god. Um, Newton, everyone's probably heard of Isaac Newton, for as good of a scientist that he was, was not as good a philosopher. So he's famous for the laws of motion, understanding, he united earthly gravitation with universal gravitation, understand that they actually are the same thing. Um, absolutely monumental to our understanding of the universe. At the same time though, he weighed in on areas that he really, I don't know if they didn't have the credentials for it, but he got some things wrong. So for example, he proposed that God is like a clockmaker, where he has to intervene in the universe to kind of like tweak here, tweak there, and make sure that the universe keeps operating according to plan. And so for example, gravity. He knew that gravity was a result of two masses that attract each other, but why that should be the case, he couldn't figure out, he didn't know that. So he proposed, God must intervene in the universe um, in order to produce gravity. So what Newton did is he placed God in the universe. Not necessarily saying he's a force of nature like some unfortunately do say, but he believed in this mechanistic God, that God was required to keep things going. Um, unfortunately, when we view God like this, we are setting up, in a sense, like a straw man. Because when we do have an explanation for why gravity exists, now what do we do? We push God out of that, of, of, out of that sphere. And now we are starting to realize in this philosophy, maybe God doesn't exist because if gravity is actually the result of the curvature of space-time that Einstein um, proposed in 1905, then I guess it's not God intervening to produce it all the time. I don't need God to explain that one. Similarly, um, evolution. If we take this literalistic view of Genesis that this is God created the world in six days and this is exactly how we do it, and if we treat Genesis like it's a scientific treatise, which it's not, the author never intended it to be, um, then when we discover things that seem like very credible from a scientific perspective, then what does that do? It pushes God out of creation as well, right? And then it allows these, these ideas that, oh, well, if we weren't created on the sixth day and we evolved from apes or whatever, you know, the science says about that, then there must not be God. It must be we're arbitrary, the soul doesn't exist, etc. So it's a mistake to place God within the universe. He is outside the universe. Um, even um, Thomas Aquinas made this argument. He said, you know, relying on scripture for scientific fact was a faulty use of human reason. Um, and in the first founding of the order of nature, we must not look for miracles, but for what is in accordance with nature. Namely, let's not 
act like God needed to use a magic wand to make everything happen. He created nature. Let's let nature speak for itself. Um, and I, I love that, that sense of I'm not going to be afraid of what the science tells me. I'm going to let it speak for itself. It, it, the nature, it's God's nature. Let, let it speak. Um, and even John Paul II again said, no, science cannot prove whether or not God exists. And the, the, the desire to prove God scientifically, he says, would be equivalent to lowering God to the, uh, to the level of the beings of our world. Let's not lower God, right? He's God. <laughs> okay. So, and then here, just want to remind us, Thomas Aquinas, the principle of double agency, similar, I think, to um, Aristotle's four causes, where again, it's not either or, it's not either God created the world or the world came to be through these scientific processes. It's both and, right? Double agency is that God is the first, the primary creator, but he endowed his creation with the power to also, um, to also affect, affect things. Um, so again, did God create the world or did it occur through natural processes? Well, the answer is both, wholly both. He is the ultimate author, but how did he intend for it to come about? He intended for it to come about by empowering his creation to make things happen. Which again, I think is fantastic because that implies surprise, right? It's not deterministic. It's all about um, innovation, creativity, and again, surprise. Okay, so here are some of the examples from physics that I think are just absolutely fun to imagine. Um, I wanted to focus specifically on light for a few probably obvious reasons, right? God says, let there be light. He even refers to himself as light. I am the light of the world. Um, you know, the prologue of John's gospel also refers to light, light from light. It's all about light. So let's just focus on light. Um, because light is a mystery. There's, this, there's these beautiful paradoxes about light. Um, you know, when Newton was alive, he, um, he was proposing this idea, like, what is light? And he thought light was a particle. Another physicist, Christian Huygens, argued, no, light is not a particle, light is a wave. So they're like, oh, well, for so long we were trying to figure out, well, what is it? Is it a particle or is it a wave? Okay. Well, then we have 1802, Thomas Young. Thomas Young did the double slit experiment, one of the most famous experiments in the history of science. I know that this is a little bit hard to see, but what he did was he took the light from a sodium lamp and he emitted it through these tiny, tiny slits. And he wanted to see what kind of pattern the light made on a panel outside the slit. And if light were a particle, the, the light should just make two little slits in, on the panel. You should see these two little slits. But is that what happened? No, that is not what happened. What happened is that as the light goes through these teeny tiny slits, because it acts like a wave, they interfere with each other in the same way like ripples on a pond. Like if you throw two stones in the pond and the ripples interact with each other, light interacts with each other like that. So instead of forming these two little slits, they make this wave pattern. Um, I put in the upper right hand corner of the screen a picture of, of one, one uh, scientist's double slit experiment. That is essentially what they saw, this like wave-like behavior. So Thomas Young, and in case you ever want to feel bad about yourself, he not only, <laughs> he, he not only um, 
demonstrated that light is a wave. He helped decode the Rosetta Stone. He also looked into, um, he's famous for coming up with a way of measuring the strength of materials. He was one of those guys. <laughs> well, we have him to thank for understanding that light is a wave. Well, that's great. Oh, oops. <laughs> Until um, Heinrich Hertz in the late 1800s, and then later Albert Einstein in the early 1900s, demonstrated that, indeed, light is also a particle, right? There is this thing called the photoelectric effect that basically shows that if a light, a particle of light called a photon, hits an electron with a certain amount of energy, it will make the electron emit, it will emit a certain amount of energy, and that can only happen if light behaves as a particle. So now we have this paradox. Light is both a wave and a particle. Um, but I love this because here is an example of the physical world showing us that it's mysterious. And again, a paradox doesn't mean a contradiction. It just means something that is difficult or are un unpredictable, right? We didn't expect something to exist in two different states at the same time, but indeed, it does. And I think this is lovely because again, don't we also know through theology that there are other paradoxes we believe in, right? God is both one and three. Jesus Christ is both man and divine. There are these paradoxes that theology asks us to accept. And indeed, the physical world also tells us, hey, we're here too. There's still a paradox here in, in the physical world. Um, I just think that's just wonderful. So, love St. Augustine. I had to include a little bit of St. Augustine here. <laughs> um, so, it, um, I, I pulled this from book one, uh, chapter four of his confessions. I loved this, this um, passage. And Augustine's describing the other paradoxes that we are taught to believe about God. And again, like I think the physical world helps give us comfort that we're not crazy to believe in paradox, right? Um, so, light, that's great. It's both a wave and a particle. But because of this, we had other scientists come along later in the 20th century, Louis de Broglie and later Erwin Schrodinger, who said, yeah, light, does, uh, light has this wave-particle duality, but you know what? So does all of matter. <laughs> all particles are both particles and waves. And so I want to share that with you um, because I think this is where modern physics um, kind of tries to present this claim that because even subatomic particles exist both as particles and waves, that suddenly like reality, everything you once believed about reality is now to be questioned. Now certainly there are things that are difficult to understand. Um, Schrodinger and many of you might have heard of, of Werner Heisenberg and the uncertainty principle. They propose this idea that you, that matter exists as both a wave and a, and a particle, but it only exists in one state depending on you observing it. So there is this phrase in quantum mechanics called consciousness causes collapse. And what they're saying is that, yes, the electron or whatever particle you're referring to does exist in two states, but as soon as you measure it, it collapses into one position. It could be in all these different places, 
um, equally, the probability that there are all these different places and it doesn't actually pick a position until you measure it. And I want to share that with you because I think that is where the, the scientistic view of the world is saying, look, reality is not what you think it is. It's all about eye of the beholder, it's all relative to me. Indeed, I was even watching um, a um, documentary on Amazon Prime or Netflix or one of the accounts my mother has that I share. <laughs> and, and he presented this, this idea and it had these like images of like demons and smoke and it made it seem like all you, didn't explicitly say this, but it made it seem like all you Christians out there that believe in God and believe in the world and believe in objective reality, we just proved you wrong. And I, I wanna say no, the devil is not in the details. Because I think what this tells us is that we are supposed to participate in the world. God created the world to be measured, to be observed, to be investigated by us. And didn't Thomas Aquinas, through the principle of double agency, also tell us that we were supposed to interact with the world? Our interaction is important for making reality what it is. So again, like I think we don't need to be afraid of modern physics. I think it tells us these beautiful, incredibly complex and wonderful things. All right, so I'm gonna skip ahead. Oh, Schrodinger's cat. If you happen to know about Schrodinger's cat, Schrodinger was trying to express how something can be in two states at the same time. Um, I'll just leave it at that for now, for the sake of time. I'd just be glad I could have used a picture of my cat. Okay, relativity. Here's something else that's so amazing about light. We learn in physics that you have to specify your reference frame before you solve a problem. You need to say, where do I put my zero, right? Is this zero? Is, is Adele, you know, three meters away from me? Is she at three meters or am I at three meters? Like, where is zero, right? We know that frame of reference is important in physics. And that there's, and as you peel back the onion, you could say, oh, you, all of you are sitting right now, you're not moving. But to someone on the International Space Station, they're like, no, you're, you're rotating with the Earth. And you can peel that layer back, and you're like, well, where does this go? Where is there this objective reference frame? Well, thanks to Einstein, we do know what it is. It's light. It's the speed of light. Um, that is the one constant in the universe. So that's, that's a great mystery. I can't really describe it with the time that I have or the intelligence that I have. But the speed of light is the one constant in the universe. You could be traveling like almost at the speed of light and like a light photon passes you and you would think, oh, relative to the speed of light, that, light must, that, that speed must be different. That is not true. Um, light will always be 300 million meters per second, always. So that tells us that light is the ultimate reference frame. Now the very cool thing I wanted to point out is that this idea of time dilation. So if light is the, the speed of light is the ultimate, like this is where it's at, that means that if you approach the speed of light, it's not the speed of light that changes, it's time that changes. So as you go as fast as the speed of light, you approach the speed of light, time stretches. And what I love about that graph right there is it tells you as soon as you reach the speed of light, there's an asymptote, which means time stops at light. And isn't God timeless? And I was like, I like that one. All right. Okay, so I, one quick thing before I show you why the sky is blue. 
I didn't get to talk about the Big Bang, I'm really sorry, but that is a Jesuit priest who proposed the Big Bang with Einstein next to him. Just great, I love it. Okay. This photo is considered the most intelligent photo ever taken. Now, they didn't take our photo, I know. But I bet everyone in this room can name at least two people in that photo. Einstein, and then in the sea of men, Marie Curie. Oh, isn't that great? That photo was taken in 1927. I just wanted to share. All of those, uh, all the scientists I mentioned earlier in modern physics are all in that photo. Just, that's awesome. Okay, so why is the sky blue? We've all seen the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon album. We all know that when white light hits some other medium, like the prism, it refracts into the colors of the rainbow. Well, that is exactly what happens in the sky. So when the sun is overhead, it's emitting white light to us. That white light travels through a vacuum, hits air molecules, and what happens, air molecules behave like a prism. And all that light refracts. What light refracts the most? The one at the end of the spectrum. So it's blue light that scatters the most and is the reason the sky is blue. And of course, when the sun is now on the horizon, what light do we get? We get the red light. Now, I know someone in this room is like, well, what about purple? <laughs> Convenient that the cones in our eyes are not sensitive to violet light, and that's why the sky is blue and not purple. All right, so in conclusion, I love this quote by the same um, Catholic bishop scientists that I mentioned earlier. I love this. Beautiful is what we see. More beautiful is what we understand. Most beautiful of all is what we can never understand. And I think it's not because, oh, it's, just, it's, it's, it's too much. There's just too much to, to, to know. I think what it's really getting at is just like the electromagnetic spectrum, there's visible light. There's some part of God that he reveals himself. And then there's so much of it that is that is beyond our view. And I think that is, that's the start of a love affair, I think, with God.